Okay, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ear Radio Podcast. I'm pumped today to be joined by Dr. Frank Wardinger. So, Frank, thanks so much for being on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be having this conversation. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, um, you know, the last guest I had on was Dr. Mike Santucci. And, you know, as doing some of the prep for that episode, I was listening to some other podcasts that he had been on and I came across yours. Um, yep. So, uh, I, I mean, maybe that's a good way to maybe kick things off is um, share a little bit about your podcast and the motivation for starting that, which I'm sure kind of like leads into your own personal life story. And from there, we can talk about Mike and some of these other influences that you've had throughout your career that I know as well. Um, but but let's go back to the start and, and hear about like your whole immersion into audiology and in the world of hearing health, hearing conservation. I love it. And and your episode with Mike was excellent. I just was listening to that and uh, found it to be you perfectly captured Mike, which is just the best <laughs> thing. And he, he's got such an amazing story. Um, I'm going to pale in comparison, but wow. I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, you asked me to start about the show. The show's been going for about a year and a half. Um, I started this out of uh, basically I, I've, I've always had this intense want to share musician stories and help people understand their perspective. I'm a former musician myself or current musician, former professional uh, engineer myself. And uh, I came to audiology kind of as an outsider's perspective uh, and found it to be fascinating. But I find that the musician's perspective is just a enigma in the field. And um, the best way that I wanted to present that was just to let the musician talk. Because what I often find is that we as the I'll include you in this, the safety geeks, the, the, you know, the health, the health nuts. Um, we tend to kind of thump our, thump our textbooks and our, our hearing Bibles and say, this is what you must do to protect your ears. And I always find <laughs> if I just be quiet for a second, the musician knows what to do and they'll, they'll reflect it back to me in a million better words than I would have ever used. So give them the floor, let them talk. And, uh, that was basically the spawn of that. And so it's been going strong, a little slower than we were anticipating, but the production takes a long time and we, we try to put some care into it. That's awesome. And remind the audience, what's the name of your show? Oh, thank you. Uh, it's called Talking Ears. Kind of like talking heads, but we're very focused on just the ears. Less David Byrne. A <laughs> little less David. Although, uh, you know, David Byrne hit me up. Come on, Talking Ears. No, yeah, th that would be cool. That would be a, a hell of a guest. I wonder if he has any sort of tinnitus or hearing conservation related issues or maybe would, he's been taking pristine care of his ears you know neither would surprise me given the genius behind that person i know um okay so you have this podcast uh and, it, and it's awesome um again i was telling frank prior to recording that like one of the best parts about this show is it's like you start as like this you're looking and focused on this one topic and that leads to a guest. And then that just spawns into all of these different connections and tangents for you to chase down. And so um, I, I was able to listen to a few of your episodes and um, you know, I, I found it to be, first off, it's a really interesting format as a musician. I like that you have like these musical interludes throughout, mm -hmm. which are really neat, very different than, than my show. I, I, it's giving me some food for thought, you know, maybe I should like <laughs> bust out my drum kit and start riffing a bit. But, um, you know, I, I thought that it was really interesting though, um, going off some of the conversations that I've had on the show about these different segments within audiology, 
Um, the, the reason I wanted to bring you on directly after Mike was because I, I think that this whole musician side of the mm-hmm. audiology world is a little bit, um, for my own sake, I, I don't know it all that well. And so I'm mm-hmm. curious and I'm trying to learn a lot about it. So walk me through as a musician when you were growing up, like what, how did this whole thing come to be where you go from musician to audiologist? Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a interesting path, and I've heard a lot of other people have very similar paths growing up as musicians, uh, just having music in the family. I think that type of upbringing, when you have a musical family and and your whole life is playing instruments and and being in performance mode, lends itself to appreciating audiology and appreciating our ears in a slightly different way. So maybe that's everybody's commonality. My commonality there was also, in addition to just being a sound nut who just like, you know, I like psychoacoustics as a high schooler, you know, that was like my favorite concept uh, to learn about. But also I injured my ears in not that dramatic of a way. I just developed tinnitus, constant tinnitus when I was a uh, 13, 14 year old, loud idiot guitar player. Um, and that led me literally into the doors of an audiologist. I got fit with musicians earplugs at the age of 13 or 14 and wore them ever since. And that left, that brought me through high school. I don't know if I shared much about it with my friends and uh, fellow uh, performers and everything. Uh, maybe I was talking about it a lot with them. I don't really remember uh, that aspect. But what I do remember was when I got to college for production, I was working in venues, working in studios, my ears were giving me some problems. And I think I had pushed my ears a little bit too much, especially in the live settings, a lot of live sound uh, mixing, uh, that I just started looking for answers of how to how to help my own ears. And um, without giving away too much about what we're going to talk about throughout the rest of the, the, the hour. Um, if the resources that are available now were available, then I wouldn't be an audiologist. I would have just gotten some consults, felt better about my ears and continue being a musician. Um, I've thought about that a lot. I think I'm very, very honest with that, that I went into audiology because I couldn't find the resources they were out there, but they were very far and few between, and I couldn't find them. So I decided to go back to grad school to figure out what was going on with my own ears. And eventually, hopefully, and then it's what came to be, help other musicians, you know, treat this head on. Uh, that's cr- that's actually a really wild story that you, <laughs> it was really the pursuit that's of audiology was, was um, more or less a byproduct of your own like Mm -hmm. desire to get to the bottom of what was going on with yourself. But I I actually think that that speaks to one of the biggest issues with um, like hearing healthcare broadly speaking is that it's so pervasive yet. I think it's so uh, I think it leaves a lot of people unsure of what the first step even is is to take. Um, I've made this comment before that I think that, and I mean this, like I'm not trying to be disparaging in any way, but I don't think that the average American at least knows what an audiologist is. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity that that provides. Um, But in many ways, I think that it's actually kind of unsurprising that 
as extreme as it is to go and pursue a, a doctoral level degree <laughs> to, to figure out what's going on with yourself, it sort of is a microcosm of, I think, the broader issue, which is that, um, and, and maybe this is changing, you know, with new media and with like people that are really taking it upon themselves to be a resource for the public, mm-hmm. is that I just don't think that there was a, a great job around communicating to the masses of of the full scope of what um, an audiologist, a hearing healthcare professional does beyond, cause everybody connotates it with, with hearing aids, unfortunately. I can't agree more because I, um, my own perspective was I had seen an audiologist as a teenager. I was treated by an audiologist. I was tested. I was given earplugs. I uh, wore those vinyl earplugs, those vinyl <laughs> musicians earplugs until they probably shriveled up. Yeah. Um, and Yet when I was tasked with how do I help my own ears, the word audiologist didn't come to mind. I couldn't find, I, I'm sure if I had searched it further. And now, now I know I was in New York city area. There were three audiologists who I could have seen in that area. And I, I talk with some of them now as, as colleague. And I wish that I just knew those resources and knew how to search for things. Granted that was a, a while ago. So we had different ways of searching for stuff, but you're totally right. There's just a, a lack of public awareness of what we can offer to the healthcare space and offer to people who are having uh, these very niche concerns. So um, you go and you get your doctoral. Where did you get your AUD? Here in Philly. So I'm still stationed in Philly, but okay. um uh, Philadelphia has this wonderful grad program at what was then the Pennsylvania College of Optometry. Confusing, I know. They found that out too and changed the name <laughs> to Salus University. Oh, okay. Salus uh, is currently a very large, well-known school, um, great reputation. It is now changing too. Um, I believe this is public knowledge now. It's merging with Drexel University, which is a very large uh, university in the area as well. So. Uh, it's kind of a complicated answer, but I would say that I went to the Pennsylvania College of Optometry and now Salus, soon Drexel. <laughs> um, I did not know that about the merging. If I understand, though, I think Salus is the biggest AUD program for, from like a headcount standpoint, right? Yeah. Each year, develop- I think they graduate the largest number of, of gra- new grads. That's true. And it's been for a while because early on, they developed a um, a remote program a off-campus program where people could come and get their AUD after already having their master's. And I would, I don't know the statistics, but it seemed like for a while, every other audiologist who had went back to get their audi, their AUD, their doctorate, um, came out of the the Salus or at that time, PCO, Pennsylvania College of Optometry program. Um, That's since closed down. They're not doing the remote program anymore. Nobody is. Um, but their current graduating class is well over 20. I teach there now. I, I started doing um, a uh, their hearing conservation and hearing loss prevention program class for the for the graduate students. And I have 29 students in my class. Wow. That's, That's awesome. a lot. It That's is. Great. It's a lot, though. When we're okay, done so... with this, I have 29 papers that I have to uh, grade. That sounds <laughs> enjoyable. Um, uh, so, okay. So you, you go to, we'll call it Salus, you get your AUD. 
Um, did you know at this point, you know, obviously you had the background in, you get tinnitus and you've had exposure to an audiologist. So you had some familiarity around this, but Mm -hmm. how, how early into, or even was it before you joined the doctoral program that you wanted to go into this, like hearing conservation side of it and build a business around that? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, it's It might be a little revisionist history here, but I have, uh, this has always been my goal. When I signed, when I applied to Salas, uh, I remember in my interview, I was talking with, shout out to Trisha Dabrowski, um, who was sort of the the head of the program at that moment and, and did my interview. Um, she made me feel super welcome because as we're talking and I'm blabbing about how I just want to treat musicians and prevent (laughs) hearing loss. She was pointing at, I believe it was Keb Moe that she had worked with. And she was like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I worked with this blues guy. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm home. Like I found it. (laughs) We're good now. So um, it's really been the whole purpose. Um, The reason why it's revisionist history is because I've been working also in pediatrics. I did about 10 years of my career right after uh, graduating in pediatric hospitals. And I love that work. I really do. I enjoy working with pediatrics. Uh, I really enjoyed my colleagues. Um, I have since for the last almost two years now, year and a half, gone full time to just my my own work. I've been doing earmark hearing conservation, my own program for since I graduated, basically doing music audiology. But now that is my full devotion. Um, which, which means I had to give up pediatrics. And for anybody who's ever worked in pediatrics and liked it, unlike Michael Santucci, <laughs> but if you liked working in pediatrics, uh, you know that it's it's tough to give that up. That's that's pretty special work. But, Can I um, just ask real quick, what were you doing in the pediatric setting? Were you doing like diagnostics <laughs> or uh, treatment, full battery, everything? Uh, full battery, basically. I wasn't doing cochlear implants, but everything else. Uh, the last couple of years over at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, amazing place, incredible institution. I was doing a lot of inpatient care. Um, so working with folks who are inpatient and uh, doing a lot of electrophysiology testing while people are in the operating room, that type of uh, work. A lot of hearing testing, a lot of, I was actually managing a program for um, the tinnitus uh, patients. Anybody who came in with tinnitus, I, I uh sort of was the point person for that, as well as the point person for our hearing loss prevention program. Um, So it was kind of a a unique program that we have there where we did, uh, and they still do, public outreach and uh, community events. We set up a whole hearing screening program uh, across all these pre-Ks. A lot of work was done in the hearing loss prevention for pediatrics, side um now you're making me miss it dave that was yeah. nice no i'm just kidding <laughs> i'm, I'm um, walking you down memory lane <laughs> reminiscing <laughs> yeah but hearing hearing loss prevention for pediatrics it was kind of a it is a kind of unique program when i was i started it and um and uh it's been handed off since and and going strong i've heard Okay, cool. So you do the pediatric stint for a while, and then two years ago, a year and a half ago, you branch off and you start Earmark Conservation. Is that the name of it? Earmark Conservation? Yep, Earmark Hearing Conservation. Earmark Hearing Conservation. Which I started basically after graduating and um, have been doing it on the side, which a lot of folks know who do niches. 
Um, it's tough to make a full day job out of something that is uh, quite arguably a niche. Um, but I de determined about two years ago that without without devoting full-time attention to it, it was not going to ever grow to where I wanted it to be. Um, so that, that made the tough decision to step away from uh, the children's work. Gotcha. Work. Okay. All right. So then with what you're doing now, give me a mm -hmm. day in the life, um, if you will. I bet that it's variable, so it's probably not super <laughs> consistent. So even if you want to yeah. maybe give me some examples, I'm just curious, like what, mm -hmm. what goes on within your new... Uh, or let's call it your side business that's now your full-time hustle. Yeah, it's the full-time hustle. It's a whole it's a whole business um <laughs> which is wild. Um it's a it's a four-sided business now. Um well, <laughs> it's a really good question. I think you hit it that it's variable. Just like your days, you know, some days you have interviews, some days you're you're uh doing all your other duties. God and, knows what. <laughs> exactly. So you're putting on different hats. I have now, it seems like four or five different hats, um, but I can kind of explain the the scope of it. Um, one big thing that I'm doing is obviously working with musicians. Uh, one to two days a week, I'm traveling out and seeing folks in their homes, in their studios, in venues, in rehearsal spaces, recording studios, and working with them directly, doing hearing testing, in-ear monitor fittings, earplugs, counseling for tinnitus, all that stuff. Um, I see those folks also in a clinic nearby where um, I'm lucky enough to uh, get a deal to rent some space for, for these folks. Um, the other big thing that I'm doing right now is CAOC uh, course directing, which is, for anybody unfamiliar, it's the Council for Accreditation of Occupational Hearing Conservationists, which means basically nurses, physicians in the occupational health world who do hearing testing, they actually perform more hearing tests than, I hate to say this, than even audiologists do in the US every year. And so they need to be trained. And the training programs are uh, these multiple day training sessions, which are very intensive. And we teach people the, the basics of audiology, as well as the ins and outs of the regulations that pertain to industry, uh, mining, all of that. And so I've built a business doing uh, before in-person courses across the Northeast here. And now uh, we've really focused since 2020. Something happened in 2020. I don't remember what, but something happened. Yeah, that made something us go virtual. Happened. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I don't know. It will come to you. <laughs> it will come to me. It comes to all of us eventually. <laughs> um, but I don't mean literally to be and figuratively. <laughs> I really shouldn't be flipping about the pandemic, but it did. It did change the um, the landscape, and since then we've been really putting a lot of energy into making virtual chaos courses a um, reality, and they've been working really, really well. Um, I am very proud of the the program that we've developed and we do something like 30 courses a year um, through virtually uh, as well as now we're getting back to doing some in-persons. So that's that's a large percentage of my time nowadays, probably about 40 to 50% of my business and my time is the chaos courses. Very and cool. then, ooh, let's see here. Uh, today's a good example. I spend a lot of time uh, usually interviewing somebody but today i get the rare 
The mic um, is turned. Sweat-inducing uh, <laughs> treat of of having the mic turned on me. Sitting in the hot seat. Oof. Oof. Uh, it feels good, though. You're a great interviewer, so it kind of feels man. nice. Uh, but yeah, getting to produce the show is a labor of love and a joy. And um, it reconnect it connects me back with my old life of just, you know, producing and recording and editing. Um, and then the other thing that I've been doing a lot of recently is telepractice, teleaudiology, which is something that we could probably spend hours just talking about because it's this new amazing facet of audiology that probably I probably a couple listeners just did a spit take when we just said we're doing teleaudiology mm-hmm. um but specifically for musicians there's a program set up through music cares and uh, I had a number of appointments this morning in between managing the business and uh editing some podcasts I saw a couple musicians and talk to them uh, talk to them about their hearing test results and how to better protect themselves and continue their careers so i don't know if that answers your question but uh it does i want to i want to actually kind of like talk about each of those because i think they're all really interesting so the the first one it's uh with chaos i think this is very interesting because Mm -hmm. it's the first thing that comes to mind here is um, speaking of Salas earlier, Dr. Victor Bray, uh, yep. he and Amin Imlani, um, who uh, I think is the president elect of ADA, um, those two have done a lot of really good work around the more or less like the state of the labor um, uh, within hearing healthcare. So, you know, kind of like looking at the, the full. Um, spectrum of hearing instrument specialist, audiologist, uh, ENTs, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. I think that they've, I think that if I'm recalling correctly, there's only like, you know, some ballpark of 15 to 20,000 hearing professionals, um, in the U S and, you know, I think that we hear some of these sort of phrases thrown around all the time about how many, people there are in need of these services. And, you know, it's like, if you, if you like somehow do the math, it's like, you know, you get one audiologist or one hearing healthcare professional for however many people, you know, divide, I guess the total population by 20,000, if you're being generous and it still leaves you with all these people. And so I've had some conversations, um, you know, I had a guy on John Swin from um, uh, Johns Hopkins and Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was one of the conversation or one of the aspects of that conversation was we were talking about how I think that, um, you know, one of the best opportunities for audiologists is to find a way to more or less extend themselves. Um, And I think that, you know, again, there's just not enough workers, there's not enough labor. And so I think that one way, I think there's two ways that you can really um, try to combat that issue. One is making the professional more available. And I think that will Mm -hmm. tie into the telehealth stuff. But the other is to allow for them to sort of disseminate their knowledge and expertise to some of these like allied medical professionals. And I think the occupational health people are a perfect example of this. Like to your point, they might be performing more screenings than anyone. Right. So they're kind of like, they're like the early detection uh, apparatus. That's really kind of trying to understand like, you know, pass fail, but Mm -hmm. catching people and understanding like who falls into that. And so I think that Again, like I, I kind of think that there is 
a bit of a knee-jerk reaction um, within this community to say that, oh no, like it all needs to be facilitated and administered by audiologists, sort of like the idea that there's a scarcity mentality of like, mm -hmm. that's technically my patient or my colleague's patient. Um, but again, it sort of flies in the face of this whole notion that there are, you know, like tens of thousands of people per every audiologist or every hearing healthcare professional. So 100%. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think it's really interesting to hear somebody that's like building a business around that because someone's got to train the this like extension of a workforce to mm -hmm. do things in the way that would be sort of like um, vetted and approved by the hearing healthcare professional community. Completely. I, I, re I totally respond to that. The, the numbers that I know are about, there's about 22 to 23,000 occupational hearing conservationists who are folks who are credentialed and able to do hearing screenings, hearing testings in an occupational setting, um, who aren't audiologists. Um, and all of these hearing tests, not all of them have to be reviewed by audiologists, but some do. So audiologists are involved in the process. But historically, since for about 50 something years, KAOC has been around training people to do this. And there's only been at any given moment, 100 to 300 course directors who typically speaking are mostly audiologists. There are some who aren't, but mostly it's uh, licensed audiologists doing these trainings, which is to say it's such a small group of us who are uh, training this vast majority of people doing the vast majority of tests. And it's sort of a shadow part of audiology that, mm. you know, to be honest, I didn't know about when I right. was in grad school. And um, now I teach all my students about it because I, I want them to know that these are career opportunities. I want them to know that for the exact reason you said, um, through your education, you can educate others and you can create this kind of it's a pyramid shaped scheme, but we try mm -hmm. not to, <laughs> not a I mean? it's not a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> not a Ponzi scheme, but it is pyramid shaped because, uh, your really great knowledge and skills to educate can then impact. I mean, I've trained over 2000, uh, OHCs now and occupational hearing conservationists. Each of them is responsible for, if you run the numbers, over a thousand workers who are exposed right. to hazardous noise. So how many, you know, if you want to be uh, grandiose yep. about it, right. how many workers then have had influence by our, what I think is high quality education? Uh, I'm biased, but I think of it as high quality. I agree. So I like to think that we are disseminating this information in a much uh, more effective or efficient way yep. than one-on-one than -on -one with patients. They're both really important, um, but it goes back to something that I think the ADA would, would um, respond to as well is, uh, you know, work at the top of your license. Mm -hmm. And the top of our license might not be literally in the room with every set of ears, but maybe educating those who are in the room with every set of ears. Right. And that's, that's a much higher call. Um, again, both are important. I love doing one-on-one -on -one care, um, but there is something here to say that this is maybe, maybe an evolution, maybe a next step. Totally. I mean, and I, I think that there is, there's a lot of nuance to this, but I, the way I sort of have thought about this is that, you know, 
the audiologist um, in many ways, and again, if, if you're thinking about it as a spectrum of like, you know, the labor spectrum. So, you know, on one end you have the surgeon and then on the other, you have the instrument specialist. And so in optometry, it's very well defined what the optometrist does, right? Which sits right in the middle. Um, and I think that audiology has sort of, in particular, audiology has sort of struggled with where they sort of fit on that spectrum. And I think that the revenue model of hearing aid sales has sort of pulled them further along over here um, when I think that their role actually needs to be closer to the middle and providing I don't know if it's necessarily like providing the diagnostics as much as it is, I think being like you just said, that facilitator of call it best practices or standards or just like the arbiter of like what you're supposed to really be doing, because I don't think it's feasible to think that, you know, like you as Frank would be doing, you said you've trained 2000 people. So that would be 200,000 people if we're being you know, just like taking yeah. these numbers at face value. So I don't know if you would literally have the bandwidth to test 200,000 people. So wouldn't it be more, wouldn't it be a more effective use of your time to kind of cater to the, to the people in the method in which you can do the masses. And then I see the, the professional and the audiologist is like you, the one-on-one -on -one visits will remain and will continue to remain because those are the people that really need your help. Yep. And so it's kind of a matter of like, how do you triage that in such a way so that you're getting people coming to you um, that truly warrant that level of care, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and that's kind of how I've thought about it is that it, this whole thing with like the chaos stuff is, is actually, I think, incredibly exciting. And I think it's something where it just allows for the um, value of audiology and the provision of that knowledge to just mm -hmm. be so much more mass disseminated in a way that I think you're going to just ultimately get way more people through the doors mm -hmm. that should be coming through the doors, if you will. Completely. I mean, that, that speaks to what you were saying before about accessibility, reducing barriers, reducing barriers to good care, um, goes down to really good education and really good access to training. Um, and then one other layer that we haven't even talked about, so who knows which one of these we're going to get time to, to chat about, but um, <laughs> another layer of kind of how to work at the top of your license is doing consulting. Because as an audiologist, I mean, everybody who's listening to this is an audiologist who is an audiologist, you have unique depth of knowledge into how not just the hearing system works and not just how the patient's hearing system works, but how hearing technology can affect larger groups of people. So I, I've dipped my toes into this now and I'm doing some consulting with some really interesting companies who are able to do, um, advance how we do hearing loss prevention, advance how we do hearing testing in these uh, non-clinical settings or non-audiology clinical settings. Uh, one group that I'm working with, uh, if it's okay to name them, um, Soundtrace, which is uh, able to do uh, this higher level sort of a machine learning almost algorithm, which I don't fully understand what that means, but bringing uh, bringing the understanding of how the audio test and the noise monitoring for an individual worker can combine together to create an understanding of risk far beyond 
simple calculations, we can actually make it personalized and accurate for the individual, which means more impactful, which means we're actually protecting people and saving people's hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other group that I'm working with very closely tuned, the one that does the televisits, mm-hmm. uh, is working on some you know, advanced practices for how to do occupational uh, hearing conservation program management and make make it available that uh, the program managers can actually see high level details and make decisions based on um, metrics that they never had access to before based on old technology. And suddenly with all this data in front of them, they can say, oh, we actually need to address this. We need to address that. It takes, it takes so much burden out of uh, those who want to do really, really good but don't have the resources or the knowledge base, present it with them, take the resource side out of it, present the solutions, and then all they have to do is put boots on the ground and deal with it in the moment. It it reduces barriers, increases accessibility, and suddenly we can actually start improving the hearing loss prevention programs in the the US and in the world. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And like, you know, one of the things that really stood out when when I had the conversation with Mike Santucci was the um, when we started talking about sort of like the collective effort here and the roles and the responsibilities. And I remember he was saying about how, you know, it's not enough like within the, you know, take like a your your standard run of the mill concert, um, you know, like I think that there's just so much public education that still needs to be done about, mm-hmm. I mean, we, in every other aspect of our, of public health, there's like so much like education and messaging and our hearing healthcare seems to just be, you know, maybe it's coming down the line. Like it's just a, it's a laggard or something like that, but it's bizarre how there's so little attention to that. And it's an interesting kind of thought experiment to, think about how that could change, you know, like, Mm -hmm. would we, you know, from the actual venue itself, having signage that displays, you know, like the need to, this is a loud environment. You'll want to wear earplugs in this setting and then have those for sale or something like that. And I think like Apple's actually really interesting. Like I wear an Apple watch. And so, you know, having a sound level meter in there is I think doing a tremendous service for people to realize like, whoa, this is a really loud environment. Like I tell this story sometimes, but I was at the dentist and my, my watch (laughs) was going off because of the drill. And I showed the lady and she's not wearing any hearing protection. I'm like, you work in a hazardous level of Mm -hmm. noise every single day. You should wear some ear protection and give your patients some ear protection too. Um, But again, it's just one of those things that, you know, and, and even in like an ancillary medical professional like that, they don't, fully grasp the the thing here. So there is like so much work to be done, I think. Um, and it, which I think you can look at it, if you're a, a professional or whatever is like that, that, that equates to a lot of opportunity. Um, but I mean, I just see this as being something where, um, and, and I'll be curious to hear from you, like even within the musicians that you're seeing and stuff like that, like when they're coming to you, um, what what's their experience been like with hearing conservation? You know, are they wearing hearing protection? Have they been given an education on like what's actually going on besides it's loud? Um, Cause that was a, that was a point that Mike made too, was 
again, all of this is just to say that, like, I, I think that, um, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity here because of how much progress still needs to be made. I I agree completely. And I'm so glad that you brought up Mike again, so we can circle back to him. He <laughs> is such a, uh, he would hate me for saying this, but uh, like really an inspiration for how we can, uh, how we can practice ethically, how we can focus on the big picture, focus on the meaning uh, behind our care, even in the face of a sometimes chaotic uh, work environment. I mean, we're seeing people in uh, very strange environments, venues being uh, not the least of them. Um, but seeing folks in this unregulated, unstandardized uh, setting, it takes a moral compass to keep the focus right on what we're supposed to be doing and having a sort of ethical code uh, that has not been really written down. And he is a wonderful, uh, you know, guidepost for all of us because he's he's very very clear about that ethical code and that that moral compass and again he would hate me for saying all this but i really <laughs> do blame him for music audiology being uh on everybody's minds right now being yeah. in our conferences being you know something that is even showing up on your podcasts um because it's his uh you know he it's it's his genuineness that people mm -hmm. respond to yeah because uh, he's yeah go ahead. just he was I, I just think about like just some of the stories he told um both on air and off i mean i think it's i i just think about in my eyes you know who who could be a better advocate for hearing conservation than the mm -hmm. musicians and so i think yep. that there's such an important segment of customers, you know, I don't think it's about the glitz and the glamour of doing business with music professionals, which let's be clear, I think is actually really cool. Like going to a show mm -hmm. and getting to know the musicians, like that's really cool. But I think that the way more exciting aspect of that is the more musicians that you can get on board with this idea of understanding the importance of, of protecting their hearing and, and then just having that be part of the culture in the music mm -hmm. scene of, you know, it's not like frowned upon to wear earplugs in your ears at the show. You know, it's little cultural things like that, that I think you need to, I think it needs to almost be ushered in by the musicians that can sort of lend mm -hmm. their coolness, if you will, to it. Yeah. And so I think that like, Mike's a very, very humble guy, but I get the sense that one of the biggest contributions he's made is he has more or less gotten the implicit endorsement of a lot of these big time musicians. And over the last few decades, that's now sort of, that's sort of cascaded into more musicians, more audiologists that are facilitating this kind of thing. It's just growing. And I, mm -hmm. again, think it's such an important segment because I think it's the kind of segment that can usher in cultural change in the sense that where, again, people start to look at protecting your ears at a show as being something that you do and it's not really even an afterthought. And then that yep. then carries into other parts of life. I hundred percent. And so, I mean, your, your direct question before was musicians and if they are, you know, what is their like level of knowledge, understanding, uh, expertise in this area? And it has grown dramatically, dramatically has grown in my 15 something years now of seeing musicians as an audi 
you know, from the audiology perspective, there is a difference where before they were very much like me saying like, well, I don't know, like I, I put some foam earplugs. I mean, I think back to this a lot, this particular one, but I put foam earplugs out at the front of a venue that I used to work at um, because I thought, well, this is loud, right? So let's protect people. So let's put some foam earplugs out. That was it. That was what I thought. I thought I did a good job. I gave myself a, a gold sticker for that effort. Um, but that's not a hearing conservation program. That's not hearing loss prevention. That's just, that's throwing band-aids at, uh, yeah. you know, at a terrible situation. There's a house fire, throw band-aids at it. That's basically mm. the solution that I was doing, which is <laughs> silly. <Cups> of water. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't effective and it wasn't helpful. And now I see people, uh, so much further down the path towards um, some people just literally during these visits lecturing to me about what they've been doing and how they've been protecting themselves. And, and frankly, I'm getting ideas of how to handle certain odd situations. I just had a guy, I hope this doesn't uh, dox him, who does, uh, is it Gamelon or Gamelon, Gamelon Orchestra? The, uh, it's like big, basically brass, like xylophone, uh instruments that just are loud and clanking it sounds amazing in person okay. but he was saying like this is too loud for me and he taught me a little bit of how to protect people the next person who comes along who does that i'm going to know a little bit more about how to protect them because this person's thought about it for years who turned him on to it i don't know but i'm also going to blame michael santucci for that for <laughs> probably whoever turned uh, him on to hearing protection uh also turned uh, you know, was influenced maybe by somebody that Michael talked to. So I completely agree. Um, I'm seeing a huge change, a huge culture shift, and it's coming about because more people are willing to talk about it, both pro musicians, mm -hmm. you know, the list of pro musicians who are outspoken and um, willing to share their hearing damage has grown hugely exponentially yeah. and that's a wonderful thing now obviously nobody needs to dox themselves and come out with their own public health information and share that but that that's partially what spurred on me doing my podcast is i i had enough people who said like essentially how can i help spread this information because they became such avid <sighs> apostles <laughs> no that's hmm. not the right word believers yeah um, they really wanted to say, hey, if I could talk to 15-year-old me and stop 15-year-old me from getting the ear, ear damage that got me to this point, uh, what would I want to say? And is there a platform for that? So I've been trying to make that platform, um, but really it does come back down to people like Michael even starting this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Um, so with the podcast, um, you know, as a fellow podcaster, I feel like you can yeah. you can relate that um, you know one of the one of my favorite parts of it are is just meeting the guests and building relationships yeah. that way. Um, you've been doing this now for what a year and a half. Um, what what mm -hmm. really stands out to you of the episodes that you've done? Um, whether you want to talk about individual episodes, individual mm -hmm. people, or just the broad themes of you know, what your takeaways are of doing your podcast, um, which, you know, I think is also a very niche focused thing, which is there are pros and cons of that. But I think one of the biggest pros is that if you're a 
if you're a curious person about what you're podcasting about, it's just like one giant Alice in Wonderland rabbit yeah. hole and you just keep going further and further down into it. Um, I always joke that I think I'm I'm quickly becoming the most knowledgeable lay person about audiology that's not an audiologist. And it's largely mm-hmm. because of the conversations I have on this podcast. So what's kind of been your experience? Again, you made me fall out of my chair. I'm <laughs> at a standing desk. So that's an, that's an idiom, but you basically <laughs> made me fall out of my chair. Uh, when you told me that the last, the last time I, I had listened to your shows, I, we've had conversations. And then I said, well, you know, as an audiologist, and he said, I'm not, I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> that'd be like two birds flying up in the air and one being like, well, as a fellow bird, and the other one's like, me, I'm a dog. Like, yeah, I think um, you're flying. Pretty much. Uh, no, it, and it, it, it uh, humbles the rest of us that we should really, uh, uh, I should read more papers. <laughs> um, to answer your question more directly, um, I think I've been surprised by a lot of things. The biggest thing that I've been surprised by is who's the audience. We thought we were making a show for musicians and we thought we were making a show for audience members and music, uh, enthusiasts. I hate using that word. Uh, but people who care about the artist's perspective, either from the stage because they they've been there or because it's interesting to hear. It's always interesting to hear musicians talk, right? They're very interesting people. Let's put a microphone in front of them and and stand back. And it's always going to be interesting. Um, What's odd is I feel like most of our response, positive and and um, constructive, has been from the audiology community, and I honestly didn't expect that. So we've taken a slight turn in how we produce shows. Very early on, I had a very simple formula of get a person on who's had something happen to their ears, and who has something interesting to talk about it, and let them talk. And uh, in my show, I like to share their music as well, because I feel like not hearing the music of a musician is like seeing half of a person's face. It's very incomplete. You don't get the nuance of what they're talking about. Like once, you know, I had a good example one of our first episodes um, was a drummer who plays in a really loud band and he's a really loud drummer. And I can say he's a loud drummer or Mm -hmm. I can play you a recording of the loudest drums you've ever heard. Which one gets the point across better? Mm-hmm, so sure. I use, yeah, and you mentioned this earlier, maybe it was uh, before we hit record, but um, why we use so much music in the, uh, or how we use music in the sh- in talking ears. And it's really, it's because of that, because I want nuance and, and clarity as far as who this person is. And that's the best way to, to understand a musician is just to listen listen to what they put out. And the second thing is I find that I want to hear my voice less in these episodes. Um, I want to pull out my commentary and my personality from the show as much as possible. Just leave enough there so that, you know, people don't forget that I'm, I disappeared (laughs) or don't think that I disappeared. Um, but I can replace most of what I said with their music. Um, and it basically gets the point across much better than anything I could have said. So if I, if I had my own devices, I wouldn't be the host. I don't, I'm not a natural host. I'm not a natural get in front of the mic and be the person who's in the spotlight, which is why I play keyboards and guitar and I stand <laughs> in the background and I prefer that. Um, I, but I felt like 
this just had to happen and there was nobody else wanted to do it. So I'm doing it. And now I've got a co-host, which is fantastic. Dr. Juan Vasquez, he's an audiologist in Chicago and he is uh, really, I got to blame him for this show actually continuing because as a fellow podcaster, you know, there is a grind to it There's and a grind. the grind, it can get tedious. You hit peaks and valleys too, for sure. Mm -hmm. You go through periods where you don't really want to do it anymore. So it's yep. really important to have um, a co-host or even just somebody that's like, I don't have a co-host, but I've, I've got a couple people that have been like long time repeat guests that every now and then I'll have to bring one of them on just to kind of like, you know, just change it back up a little bit and give me almost a, um, like a, break a breath of fresh yep. air, uh, before getting back into it. But you know, the interesting thing for me and not to like, just make this about me, but I bet you can relate to this is that sometimes when I'm, uh, feeling maybe like, like least motivated by my show and everything, something will change and come along and then I'll get really interested in that. And again, it's the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole where you go down something and, and that leads to like a totally new facet and tangent. And then like from there, it's just, I don't know, I've been doing this long enough now to know that like, you know, so long as you want to continue, the name of the game is just kind of keep going. Um, yeah. And I think that because like you'll, there's so much serendipity when it comes to a podcast, whether it's like determining who your next guest is going to be the next topic that you really want to discuss. So much of it for me has been a really small aside in the last episode where I'm like, wait, that was a really interesting point. Who's the person that I should have on to like really flesh that out. So I feel like that's a challenge for people that are producing content in general is like you hit these walls, but I think that it's just part of the process. Trust the process. You know that in Philly. Yep. Trust the process. <laughs> I say that more often than I actually understand what that reference means. <laughs> I'm not a sporty person, but um, you got to you got to trust the process. I couldn't agree more. And as long as you have something, it's not about having something interesting to say. It's having an interesting topic to explore. And there's nothing more interesting to audiologists than hearing and ears and sound. And there's nothing more interesting to musicians than hearing and ears and sound. And so we're just trying to push those two things together and, and see what, you know, see what fires we can make with that. And I, I mean, Juan and I were just having a production meeting earlier this week where we looked back at our list of potential guests and potential topics, and it is just never ending. And that excites me and exhausts me mm -hmm. to equal measure. <laughs> so that's why having a partner in crime in this, um, is so important because you you uh, you have to have a sounding board to be able to say, hey, are we going far enough? Are we are we uh, do we need to take a pause? Um, and and keeping that motivation going. Um, there's always something more interesting around the corner with with these shows. Um, I mean, I think you hit it that like there's there's just another kind of facet to pull out. Um, in my position, a lot of our guests come from patients uh, that I've seen. And when a person is talking to me, and I'm going to say this and regret it, because then if there's any future patients who hear this, they're going to be like, now I know how to get on the show. Mm -hmm. um, but if, they, if they're if they talking to me and I hear, if I can, like, I'm not a journalist, but you're a journalist, right? If you can hear that story in your head of like, 
man, I just want to let this person run for an oh. hour in front of a microphone. You immediately know you're like, oh, this person would be a fantastic guest. Exactly. And I bet you get that with the patients that you're seeing are like, I do. And then there's other time and a view on this exactly. and perspective. There's definitely times where the story is too personal. The story is yeah. nothing that they want to share and that's fine. Um, I've had guests actually pull out from being guests on the show because they just said, Hey, look, you know what? It's really personal. I don't want to share it. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. Nobody has to share it. Um, but I've had other people who said, uh, I don't want to, but I need to, because it's really important to me and my community uh, that this gets shared. And then now we've had a lot of guests who are uh, audiologists, engineers. Um, Michael Santucci was on an episode. Um, people who are kind of adjacent to that core, my what I think of as kind of my core guest of a person with a story and music. Um, who uh, we can expand this conversation. And now we're even talking about having music audiology panels of just music audiologists come on and talk about the the topics because apparently this is something that people want to hear and I'm overjoyed to be able to share it with them. That's awesome. I want to close here and just kind of wrap up with looking to the future, looking, you sure. know, you said you've, you're currently, um, you know, you're teaching classes of, 30 plus students in some of these classes <laughs> with your own personal experience, you know, when you first kind of came into this. Um, and again, it's like, it's nice to have this conversation directly after the one with Mike Santucci, because, you know, he was sort of like the first generation of these musical yeah. audiologists. And then, so now you've got Heather and Shannon and, you know, some of these different people that were sort of right that next crop. And then I feel like you and some of these, like this next generation three, where you're like, 2.5. Um, it just seems like it keeps growing. And I'd be really curious to hear about what the what's the mindset of the young professional today with regard to this space? Um, how are they looking at it based on your interactions with them? Like, is there some aspect to this that they're gravitating toward that they're looking at and saying, whether it's their sustainability there mm-hmm. um, or this jives with what I want to do where it marries musicians and music music, and then audiology. I'm just curious of what mm-hmm. you feel is maybe at the heart of why there seems to be more of a push in this direction um, within the next crop of grads. Man, that is such a good question. And I, I like... I like that you're bringing it back to that because I think early on when I started working in towards doing a music audiology business, um, I was mentored a little bit with, or a lot, let me rephrase that, mentored a lot by uh, Brian (laughs) Flieger over in Boston. Great guy, great friend. He was running a musician's hearing program and I did my fourth year up with him at the Children's Hospital. He mentored me and showed me the ropes on kind of the business and, and the patient care of music audiology. Um, and what I kind of took away and emphasized to anybody who would ask about or ask that question was that music audiology will always be a niche and always be a side hustle because uh, of just kind of the, the number of folks that you have as far as a pool. Um, and what my answer is now it's changing dramatically 
because now I'm talking with folks, either students, my own students in the grad program, or I meet with a lot of students or early professionals at um, conferences. And now that we have telepractice, now that we have more awareness in the audiology community, there's more demand for our time and needs um, and more respect in that sense too. I don't think that that's the case anymore. I really think that this can be for those people who are really devoted to this, a full-time work, just like it is for the Heathers and, and me and, and a couple other folks, uh, Lisa Tenenbaum out on the West Coast. Um, there's a, a handful of us um, who this is what we do now. And that is an option. And I don't know if that was so much an option before, a viable, reachable goal option, but I do believe it's a career path now. Uh, as far as why, I don't, I think that it's coming from the music community. I think it's a spiral, right? The peop, the Michaels of the world are educating the musicians. The musicians are now asking for our care and the local audiologists, uh, that sounds derogatory, the uh, your general practitioner audiologist is now receiving a whole lot of more influx of requests right? and looking towards things like AAA asking, Hey, is there a practice guideline on this? And Michael led our task force to write a clinical consensus document in 2020 to put it out there so that there is some guidance and it's not just shooting in the dark anymore. Um, and, you know, we have people like Marshall Chasen, who's written numerous textbooks and guidance and has a blog about how to do this stuff well and uh, efficiently and effectively and care about the musician. And I think we're at a we're at a bit of a crossroads. We're at like an inflection point where we can start seeing this be a, a more viable yeah. um, for for a new for a new audiologist coming into the field, this becomes a more viable option. Um, and I'm so excited about that. Mm -hmm. I really am. Right. I mean, I think you're right there that, um, you know, it, it is a spiral. And I think like one thing sort of precipitates the next where mm -hmm. you get somebody like, um, you know, this really <clears throat> uh, influential character like a Michael that I think um, everything just sort of dovetails into the next. You then have all more musicians are interested in this. And that means that more audiologists are getting inquiries about this. And so then they're looking for specialty training. And I'm sure like, you know, one of the things we talked about with him is his Sensophonics gold circle program, yep. um, which I think is, is incredibly important. Um, again, I, I just look at this and say, you know, it's not just young people. It's just this notion of being the forever student and, having the humility to like keep learning and just say like, I can do more because I think at the end of the day, it's just going to, it's going to behoove you to have something that caters to this increasing demand. And again, I, I kind of think that that is full circle to the reason there's more demand is because there's more awareness in the music community now of how, how severe this is. When you see these stories coming out from guys like Huey Lewis and, you know, it's like, I think that there is a level of 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 uh, of fear almost of like, you know, I need to take this thing serious. And I don't know if that's like kind of always been the case or if maybe that is generationally changing mm -hmm. where younger musicians are understanding the severity of this and wanting to be very proactive early on. 
Um, but again, I think that then leads to these conversations that are being had. And, and that's probably where you're seeing all of this kind of trickle down into this new increasing demand of the, at the like, you know, emerging graduate level of wanting to specialize in this. Oh, there's a third layer to the spiral too that has changed, which is the technology mm. is now there to support um, the care. So back in the 70s, oh. for instance, you had people like Pete Townsend is a good example of a, a loud rocker who uh, was at the forefront of technology and was able to make louder sounds than other people could with their guitar. Great. Awesome. Go for it. We <laughs> didn't know the risks. So what's the harm to it? And hearing protection devices weren't available that sounded anywhere decent to musicians. So That's a great point. I don't even I don't even see that it's as a like, non-starter. It's a non-starter. So mm -hmm. at that point, it's like the fact that Pete Townsend now is an advocate for hearing loss prevention and discussing his own tinnitus and hearing loss. It's not a failed system. It's the system evolving and improving. And the fact that now, you know, Michael's company and a bunch of other uh, advances at Emotic creating earplugs that actually work on stage for the vast majority of musicians, inner monitors have improved, our ability to test in strange environments. My audiometer fits in my backpack so I can go right. anywhere and do diagnostic hearing tests. That was not the case before. And so our abilities to attack, I mean, telepractice, our abilities mm -hmm. to do this has finally caught up with the need to do this. Maybe that's the best way of saying it. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I think you're spot on there because the, 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 in my mind, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges that like a guy like Michael probably had to face was how do you say you just seem like such a, like the fun police where you're saying, mm -hmm. Hey, musician, the, the thing that you love, that's your livelihood. I'm going to come in and tell you that you need to like turn it down because it's not safe. Um, and I think that in the past, people probably just perceived that as that was going to like distort and tarnish the way that it actually sounded and the whole experience and everything. And I think that like through his work and I think through this progression of time where you have had all this innovation, where you really do have the ability now to sort of preserve the integrity of the music, but just do it in a way yep. that's safe. Um, that is dramatically different than what existed when he started. So mm -hmm. again, kudos to all the giants that came before us that like everybody is kind of standing on these shoulders um, because like, I think that it's whatever we think is difficult now, like imagine how challenging selling yeah. somebody on that concept was back when you were using vinyl and that was the only option. And like, just imagine mm -hmm. the, you know, kind of the effect that that does. I can imagine he was met with some pretty fierce opposition initially. He said yeah. he was laughed out of the first room that he was like exhibiting at. Yep. You and know, and so. I think that, uh, you know, we really have to thank those pioneers, let's call it that, who had the audacity to just kind of push through it forward with that. Because mm -hmm. I look at myself in the mirror and I say, I have a passion for this, but do I have entrepreneurial audacity to push forward in headwinds like that? Probably not. Uh, which isn't to say, you know, if you want to topple me, all you have to do is just, you know, blow a hard wind at me and I'm going to fall over. But in truth, like we, we all have a limit to how much we can push and how much we can change literally the culture. And I think it takes a certain amount of 
uh, healthy, the, the word arrogance gets a bad rap, but like a certain healthy arrogance to say, no, this is right. No, this yeah. is important. Owning and, your expertise, owning your domain. Yeah. You know more about this than anyone. And it, I don't think that's arrogance. I think yeah. that's just uh, subject matter expertise. Yep. You had Kathleen Wallace on. I did, um, yep. And she talked a lot about this word expert. And I I got really into that part of the conversation because it touches on how we present ourselves and this circles back to almost everything we've talked about of uh, you can present yourself uh, at the top of your license and, and realize that the, the skills that we have as hearing healthcare knowledgeable professionals goes beyond, um, it includes the patient care. I don't want to let go of that. It includes the one-on-one patient care, but it can go beyond that and we can spread our, spread our information as wide as possible. And I, I think that that's where where audiology needs to keep pushing itself. Um, you know, it's it's not a crowded space. That's the other thing I want to say. Mm-hmm. There's, there needs to be more people in all of these things that we've talked about. This isn't a club that has a entrance fee or any high barriers. It's not a crowded Free space. Admission. Free admission, please <laughs> come on um, over. I'll bring I'll bring the pizza. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, you know, uh, this is a perfect place to wrap because I think like you're very similar and Kathleen is like the poster child of the kinds of people that I feel like I'm so fortunate to have met through this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for me, you know, having like a strong conviction that this industry is going to continue to do well in the future, it all stems from the kinds of interactions that I've had with people like you, people like her, where I can see now it's becoming more and more like in focus of how you could successfully have a business that's not the traditional private practice, but it's like the 2023 version of it, the millennial version of it, where, you know, it's like, okay, so, and I think it's so cool that she's doing something very different, but it's still, it's a different take on everything that she's doing is like the methodology of it is so modernized. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying that it's superior or anything like that. It just lends itself to like totally different ways in which you can bring value to the market and therefore you can like build a business around it. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with what you're doing around hearing conservation is for me, like that's just so encouraging to hear that there are multiple ways. Uh, These are just two examples. There are lots and lots. um, And I'm going to keep trying to flesh them out on this podcast of like, if I were a young professional getting started, or if I were looking for a career change in this, I think there are many options available to people. Um, But I think it boils down to identifying what you are naturally suited for. And, you know, kind of like it, plays to your strengths. Um, but I think that the most encouraging thing is that the, there's so much more nuance in hearing healthcare than just like selling and administering hearing aids. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a huge part of it, but like, there's so many other revenue generation possibilities and also just ways that they're, the audiologist can remain relevant, I think, like far into the future that has nothing to do with hearing aids per se. That's just one facet of what they're doing, but there's so much more to that. And I think that's kind of the goal right now is like to kind of almost rebrand in the eyes of the public to say that this is 
this is the medical professional for all things ears, which we now know, like there's a, you know, so much relationship between the ears and the brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's a, it's like a, it's like an evolving thing that I think just continues to shed more and more light and illustrate the importance of this professional. I think there's tremendous opportunity here, but a lot of it has to come down to like people sort of Lewis and Clarking it and like figuring out like, (laughs) all right, like, all right, let's go down this route and and flesh it out and make sure that this thing there, you know, there's no will to be stunned that way. <laughs> <laughs> or how to use them to your advantage. And, you know, there's there's been pioneers, especially in music audiology, who didn't have a chance to share their, their pioneering. Um, I could name them if I wanted to, but they don't get enough credit for that. And partially because there wasn't platforms like your platform. So it, again, it brings it full circle back to our conversation. It's a spiral that the um the dissemination of knowledge the dissemination of information the public awareness that you're creating helps prompt this kind of movement forward because hopefully there's a grad student who's listening who goes mm-hmm. i'm going to change my change my path slightly because i just heard that i'm going to reach out that, to frank so. perfect segue or, not as me close you. here <laughs> as we close here where can people connect with you what's the best way to to link up if for Great those question. that might be interested. Yep. Uh, I am very accessible by email. Um, you can go to my website, earmarkhc, as in hearingconservation.com. Uh, my email address is frank, that's me, at earmarkhc.com. Um, you can also find information about our show called Talking Ears. You can just search it in any of your podcast players. Um, we are trying to be more active on the social medias, but unlike Kathleen Wallace, I am not (laughs) a natural at that. And so, um, I think, uh, if you want to reach out that the best ways are probably through the website. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Frank. I've really enjoyed the conversation, getting to know you a little bit better, uh, and learning more about what you're doing. So thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers.